Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at two verses, verses 9 and 10. And let me say, it's just, it's great to be back with you. I had some restful Sundays where I was able to just sort of sit in a service without any responsibilities, and, and I got to preach at the church that we visited in Colorado once, but I've missed being with you. And it feels good to be here sharing God's word with you, and I enjoy doing that. So I'm really glad to be back, and thank you for caring for us well. Well, we are looking at the book of Hebrews, and as you might remember, um, the book of Hebrews was written to people who had somewhat recently become Christians. Of course, everybody that the Bible is written to it in the New Testament had recently become Christians, because it's not that far after Christ had had uh, come upon the earth. So they're, they're somewhat recent converts, and yet now they are experiencing uh, significant trials. And some of them are tempted even to just give up, stop claiming to be Christians. You can understand somewhere, probably, where that temptation might come from, right? In trusting in Christ doesn't make all the hard things in life go away. If you read this letter, which I hope you have, it's apparent that that some of the Christians were put in prison. Uh, Some had their homes taken away from them. Becoming a Christian made their life even harder. And the author writes very pastorally, actually this was probably a sermon itself at some point, Uh, preaches to these people very pastorally to encourage them, to instruct them, and even in some cases to rebuke them, all concerning how they ought to live their lives with these trials coming at them in light of the hope of the gospel. And we don't have to be in those extreme trials to be encouraged and at times rebuked in this book. So the passage that we're going to look at in particular today focuses us, the way it it does all these things, is by focusing us on the rest to come. Rest in the Bible is very important. Jesus said, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those words are important to many of you, I know. Some of you right now look a little tired. I probably do too. So let's look at this passage and be encouraged at the rest that this passage holds out for us. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. I'll read it slowly and carefully. There aren't many words here, and all of them matter. So then, which by the way shows he's concluding, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For, why that remains, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just as God did from his. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us help in understanding this passage. Oh Lord, we confess that we are tired. We are weary and heavy laden. Lord, we pray that you would show us the kind of rest that only you can give us and cause our hearts to be stirred 
to see you for who you are in your glory. Give us faith and repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So these are short verses, but there's a lot in them. And there's a lot in them, especially when we realize that the author in these verses is drawing to a conclusion, uh, an argument that he's been building for some time. Notice that there. It begins, so that. That is, in light of what the author has said and what you've heard preached about for the last month or so, in light of all that the author has said about rest, about entering into that rest, about warnings, about the need to hear and listen, in light of all that, here is the conclusion. And what does he say in conclusion? Well, I think he says two points. And so there's two points in this sermon. First, he says that rest is real. There remains. The emphasis here in that passage, I believe, is remains. There remains. It's there. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. It, it remains. It's a real rest. I will argue it's a real rest in the future. It's, it's not for now, it's in the future. But look to it. He's holding out that hope for Christians. A rest remains right here. And second, he tells them the rest is rooted in who God is and what God has been doing since the very beginning of the world. In other words, the rest that is real is grounded in the reality of God. And he tells us that so that we know that we can really take this rest to the bank. We can bet everything on the rest and we won't come up short. In other words, this rest is embedded in the nature of God and his work in the world. And therefore, it should be embedded in the structure of your hope. Friends, what do you put your hope in? What are you longing for? What are you looking to? This rest that we see here should be part of that. Okay, so let's start with the first point. Rest is real. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. God is giving us real rest, a deep, lasting rest. Some of you are getting sleepy right now. Right? We're talking about that, right? No, this is not a reason to sleep during this sermon. You listen to this sermon if you're tired because there's a rest coming ahead. Look to that rest. There is a rest that is deeper and more tranquil than the best vacation, the most perfect sabbatical. And this should encourage us. This was written to encourage us. But in order that we have the proper expectations, we need to ask and answer the question, when is this rest to occur? Namely, is it now? Is this passage inviting us to a rest now, or is it looking to the future? And I've already indicated, I believe it's looking to the future. The rest is not something primarily that we participate in this life. It's in the life to come. And that's important so that we have proper expectations for what our life will be like now. I mean, let's say you've been training for a marathon, and uh, you know that on marathon day, there will be some serious times of rest, right? Because, you know, afterwards, you won't be able to walk very well. You're going to have to rest. But let's say you mix up the time of running and the time of rest. Well, you'll be very disappointed as you're running down the marathon route that they don't have lazy boys, you know, along the side, right? You're not going to do very well. And you'll be disappointed that there's people along the side yelling at you, go, go, go. You'll be like, wait, I'm trying to rest. No, we, we can't confuse the time of rest and the time of work. So um, we will be disappointed if we do. So why do I think that the rest in view here is future? 
Well, it's, a, it's because of the whole argument that the author of Hebrews has been making thus far. You remember this verse I read is a conclusion, so then. So then, the rest remains. And if you've been listening to Steve's great sermons over the last uh, few weeks while I was gone, um, you'll remember that the author has been comparing the church and really the whole situation that the church finds itself in to the wilderness generation during the time of Moses when God had led the people out of Egypt and they were traveling through the desert, through the wilderness. And if you remember that that time in the Old Testament, the wilderness generation, not all who came out of Egypt made it all the way to the promised land of rest. Sadly, some perished along the way. And the book of Hebrews makes it crystal clear why some perished along the way. It says in chapter 4, verse 2, that they perished because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So, So back in the Old Testament times, there were people then who were with the people of God. That is, they were right next to them. They were kind of with them. But they were not truly of the people of God. And the reason they were only with the people of God and not of the people of God is that they didn't really have faith. They weren't united by faith with the rest of the group. That is, they didn't have ears to hear. They didn't listen. And the author of Hebrews wants the church not to fall away as they travel to their destination. That's why he gives so many warnings in this book. That's why we read in chapter 3, verse 6, we are his house, that is, we are of God's people, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Or in three, verse four, chapter 3, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, the author of Hebrews does not want this church, does not want you to be merely with the people of God and not truly of the people of God. And so he tells us that faith is required. We must listen. We must believe. And friends, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've seen the difference between being with God's people and of God's people. Because there are probably people you know who have begun the Christian life and it looked good for a while, but then many, maybe money or jobs or relationships just sort of pulled them away. Or maybe they they seemed to do okay as a Christian when they were doing well, but all of a sudden when financial trouble hits, or health trouble hits, they suddenly began to say to God, how dare you do this to me? Some people don't make it to the end. And the book of Hebrews tells us that that's because they were never really there in the beginning. So the author pleads with his readers to make sure they've made a true start, to make sure they're actually believing in Jesus and holding fast to him or They won't make it to the rest in the end. That's the context of this book. And the conclusion that he's drawing from that context is that he's drawing our attention to the flip side of the warning. And that is that those who do hold fast, those who do hold to Christ, will make it to the rest in the end. And that ought to be a great source of hope and consolation. So you see from the context, the rest is a future reality. 
In other words, the, the book here is presenting the church as if we are traveling along a road. We're going to our destination. And the Bible talks about Christians as aliens and strangers. The Apostle Peter begins his letter saying, to the elect exiles scattered throughout, and then he names the cities where the Christians live. We are not really exiles of a land. We're exiles of an age. This is not our time. We don't belong here. But we are traveling through this age until we reach the promised age of rest. That is where we belong. Just as Israel traveled through the desert to reach the promised land of rest, which is where they belonged. The rest is a future reality, and we're going there. So friends, because we are travelers, and this is not our age, don't be surprised when you face manifold trials in this life. The Old Testament Israel faced a lot of trials in the desert as they were headed towards the promised land. But for the true believers among them, the trials weren't that big of a deal because they knew that they were only temporary and they were heading to a place of rest. But for the unbelievers among them, those who were only with God's people, those trials were a really big deal because they couldn't see beyond the trials. That's why the believers and the unbelievers in the nation could be distinguished with something as simple as their reaction to food. The believers realized that the rest was future, so they didn't mind eating the same thing every day in the wilderness. They were going to the land overflowing with milk and honey. But the unbelievers didn't really believe God was bringing them into that land. They thought what they see is what they got, and then the menu became all-important. And they complained incessantly. Well, if you look to the future rest, friends, it will drastically alter your perspective on the trials here and now. If you put your hope in that future day, you won't mind so much the inconveniences and the losses and the pain that you experience in this life. A marathon runner doesn't complain about the pain in her body when she is on mile 25, right? Because there's only one more mile to go. And the promise of rest motivates her to make it strong to the end. And so also we should not complain about the trials that we put up with here and now because there is a rest coming. We are going somewhere. So friends, if somebody were to follow you around with a tape recorder this week or last week, and they were to have recorded everything you said about everything that was hard, and then play that back, would it show that you were looking forward to a rest to come? Or would it show that you believed that what was here is what you had? Well, friends, I pray that that your life will reflect that life to come. And that because you have a hope in the future, it will make a difference for you now. Also, because the rest is future, don't be surprised if now involves a lot of hard work. Look there with me at verse 10. Notice that verse 10 there talks about how Christians have rested from their work. And if I'm right that this rest in view here is future, that means the present is the time to work. If future is the time to rest, then present is the time to work. And what is that work? Well, I think first and foremost, it is the work of keeping ourselves in the faith. 
It is the work of seeing that we do continue holding fast to the confidence of our, and our boasting in our hope, the hope of the gospel. And friends, we don't do that in a vacuum. We don't do that in isolation. We do that in the context of a community of brothers and sisters who we fight the fight of faith with. We don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we encourage one another. That's the work that God has called us to do. Friends, think about it. You can't do that work in heaven, can you? You can't encourage a weak, struggling believer who's beginning to doubt their faith in heaven. You you can't share the gospel with unbelievers in heaven. That work can be done now. Now is the time to do that work. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. He's speaking to them in light of the resurrection. That, that f- chapter 15 is a famous chapter about the resurrection from the dead. And here's how he concludes that section. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Friends, I I wonder if you truly believe this. Tired mom, do you believe this? Or or frustrated dad? Or maybe the parent who's listening to this online because your kids have been sick for the third week in a row. Or the single who feels isolated. Or, Or maybe you're at that age when your body is starting to slow down and you know it's not really going to get better. The labor that you expend in the fight for holiness, the fight to do what God has called you to do faithfully, that labor is not in vain. There will be a rest in the future that is out of this world. And right now, we work, and that work has purpose in the Lord. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And friends, if we think about it, that is really the ideal situation we could possibly uh, find ourselves in. It's, we can't ask for anything more. I mean, we get discouraged when it's the opposite, right? We get discouraged when it feels like all we're doing is spinning our wheels and we're not actually going anywhere. We're on a merry-go-round, going around and around and around. We're not doing anything, and there's no way off. And we'll never get out of this. And that's how our lives can seem sometimes through the eyes of unbelief. But through the eyes of faith, everything we do in the Lord has value. It's not in vain. And there's a day when we'll rest. It will not continue on and on and on forever. There will be a day of rest. Our work in the Lord has value. It is not in vain. And there will be a time of rest. Now, some of you are worried that what I'm going to do is just create a whole bunch of workaholics, right? Um, I hope I'm not trying to do that. Rest assured that that's not what I'm intending to do. Rest is good. The Bible instituted rest even with the Sabbath day so that the people in the Old Testament would have a weekly reminder of the need for us, of the need to rest. We, I do not believe, are under the, the Sabbath obligation. There is still wisdom in putting rest within our schedules. God did not create us to just go on forever. We need to rest. But I think the biggest thing that prevents burnout 
and being overwhelmed is not necessarily the amount of work that we do, but that we do it with the wrong perspective. We approach the work as if it's all there is, and that we're stuck in this situation forever. And that is incredibly discouraging. That's why we need the faith. We need to see this passage and its encouragement that rest is real and our work has meaning. Friends, I wonder if we really understood that the time here was for work and the work that we did in the Lord was not in vain, how would that change your attitude towards certain needs in the church? How would that change your attitude towards the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Would it change how much TV you watched or video games you played? Not that those things are wrong in and of themselves. You can partake in those freely in the Lord, and that's fine. But if you structure your lives around resting now, how can I get the best entertainment now? What does that say about where you're looking to for your ultimate rest? What does that say about your hope in the rest to come? or the work that God has called you to that is not in vain. Furthermore, the author of Hebrews, you have to realize he is writing to people who don't have a choice in the matter of their work. Their their property is being taken away from them. Some of them have been thrown in jail, and when they gather for their members' meetings, they're not talking about how to uh, um, fill the slots for children's church. They're talking about how do we support the families of the men and, and the husbands and the fathers who have been thrown in prison for their faith. How do we take care of one another? No, their work has been thrust upon them. And the author of Hebrews is giving them a great encouragement for even their extremely difficult situation. How much more can that encouragement help us now? Also consider the fact that the most important work that you do has no rest at all in this life. Because the most important work you do is the work of of faith. The work of fighting against sin and temptation. John Owen, in his book, Sin and Temptation, writes this. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If we be not fighting, we be dying. There's no day off in the fight against temptation or the fight for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's a work that we must give ourselves entirely to right now in light of the day when we will enter into rest. Well, Martin Luther was a man who accomplished much. He wrote uh, the initial theology for the, the Protestant churches, for, for the Reformation, He translated the Bible into vernacular German. He pastored a church. He taught in a seminary. He had six kids. Are you tired yet? And he wrote more books than are contained in in many libraries. Listen, but he also knew how to rest and relax and did not take himself seriously. But listen to what he said about this life. You've probably heard me say this before if you've been coming for a while. He says, this life is not health but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not what yet we are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing t- toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. I love the way that captures the the sense that the Christian life is a journey. 
that we are like that wilderness generation who left Egypt and is heading for the promised land. Do not expect things to be entirely healthy. Do not expect it to be a place of rest. It is a place of exercise. And friends, if we can keep that in our minds, it will help us much. But not only does the author of Hebrews here insist that rest is real, he also tells us that rest is grounded in who God is and what God has been doing in the world. This is point number two. Rest is grounded in the nature of God and what he has been doing in the world. Look there at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is a very interesting verse, and I have pondered it for hours this week, and I don't fully understand it, but I'll tell you what I have seen. First, notice that the rest that he's talking about here is God's rest. We enter into God's rest. Not just that God enters into God's rest, that's more obvious. We enter into God's rest. Whoever has entered into God's rest, it says. So, friends, the rest that we've been talking about here isn't your rest. When your life is ended and you enter into rest, it's not yours like you might have your vacation or your weekend or your sabbatical even. It's God's. Now, what does that mean? It means that we don't get to set the terms for it. You don't get to set the terms for it. You don't get to decide entirely what you will do. You don't approach heaven like a weekend or a vacation. It also means you're not going to get to heaven unless you, or let's say it this way, you're not going to get what you want in heaven unless what you want is God. The rest is on God's terms, and as it turns out, it is rest with him. And so to desire rest without desiring God is to miss the point. The rest is God's rest, and it is rest with him. But for those who do desire God, the hope of entering into his rest is tremendously encouraging because it shows us how much God accepts us and welcomes us. If God is going to welcome us into his rest, it means that he is not treating us like slaves. Can you imagine a slave, a master saying to slaves, oh, enter into my rest. No, the master keeps the slaves working as as hard as they can. God doesn't treat us as slaves. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but friends. And then he said, I go and prepare a place for you so that where I am there, you may also be. Think about it this way. If you're going on vacation, you probably are going to go and just take your family. But you might consider taking somebody else who is very close to you. You might allow them to enter your rest with you. And that is a wonderful thing. That's sort of what's what's going on here. It is God's rest. But he is going to bring those who he wants with him. And those who he wants are all true believers. And friends... If you're a true believer, you should feel welcomed, wanted, accepted, loved. Now, I think this passage invites us to uh, ponder a bit more. When God invites us into his rest, what exactly is he sharing with us here? 
And let me warn you, this is getting a little bit speculative, and it will require a bit more brain work, but I think it'd be helpful for us to think about nonetheless. Well, the way to answer that question is to start thinking about what it means for God to rest. The text says, whoever enters into God's rest has rested from his works just as God did from his. So there's a connection between us resting from our works and God resting from his works. And it turns out our rest is God's rest. So we got to start thinking about, okay, what is God's rest? And in order to, you know, to do that, the author points us here back to Genesis 2. He already quoted that passage uh, a few verses earlier. And the text in Genesis 2, we don't have time to go and look at it, but if we did, we would see that that text is explicit about the connection between the completion of creation and rest. So, God made the world in six days. And then Genesis 2 says, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. God made the world six days. And then it says, and on the seventh day, God had finished his, the work that he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So creation is finished. Creation is good. Behold, very good. And then God rested. His rest is driven out of the fullness and the completedness, the completion of creation. That means that God didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't need a day off after six days of, you know, creating the world. But at the same time, God wasn't being lazy. Just because he didn't need a day off didn't mean that his rest was an act of laziness. Thus, resting, for God at least, is of intrinsic value. Resting is something good in and of itself. I I don't fully know what it means, but I love the fact that God rested. I mean, think about people you might know. There are people who can't rest because they are too restless inside, right? They're always moving from one thing to the next thing. They they often get their identity by what they do so they can never stop or they wouldn't know who they are. They don't have peace with themselves enough to rest. These people are really hard to spend time with, usually because you can't get them in the same, you can't catch them standing still. And at the same time, there's people who you might know who, All they do is rest, and they're lazy, and they should be working. And it's you might be able to know these people, but you can't depend upon these people. Friends, our God is like neither one of those. He rests. After making the world, he doesn't start making another world. He rests to reflect upon and enjoy the world that he has made. Now, this passage probably leaves us with more questions than it does answers. We wonder, well, did God start back to work at the beginning of the next week? It doesn't really say that he did, but, but then on the other hand, when you read the rest of the Bible, clearly God is at work. I think the thing to remember here is that God is not limited by time. He doesn't experience the succession of moments as we do. So rest for God isn't so much a day on his calendar as it is a perspective into who he is. And at the end of our lives, when our work is finished, God will share that perspective with us. We will enter into a rest 
that is intrinsically good, that has value. It's not just because, oh, we lived our whole lives and we're really tired now. No, the rest will be, will transcend that. And friends, we know that he shares this rest with us, not just because he's promised it, but because he's built that rest into the very structure of creation. He he makes it that on the seventh day is holy, and he blesses it, because that's the day that God rested. That's the Sabbath day. And as Steve pointed out two weeks ago, rest is is woven into the, the fabric of creation. Because Israel was headed to the promised land, or I should say the fabric of of history. Israel was headed to the promised land in order to have rest. But that wasn't the ultimate rest because David spoke of another rest later on. So then the author concludes here in this section, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Why is it a Sabbath rest that remains? Well, the answer is that it's the rest. It's the very completion of rest that God started way back In the beginning. In the beginning, after God created the world, he rested. And thus, God puts rest embedded in creation, programmed into creation as the goal for creation. And friends, if we believe this, I think we have to change our mindset on something. I think we often think that the purpose of rest is to make us work better. We work better if we rest, so we rest. But there's a better rest that transcends the the mere purpose of making our work more efficient. It is a rest for its own sake, or better, it is rest for God's sake. And it is a rest that flows out of the fullness of all that God is, and all that he has done, and all that we have done through him. This is the rest that God has prepared for us. In the age to come, we will see the work that we have done is not in vain. We will see how it all fits together in God's plan. We will see how the losses and the crosses have worked together for the glory of God in a way that we could never have imagined at the time. And we will rest more deeply and pervasively than we could ever have imagined. God will share his rest with us. Now, there's one more thing I want to say before I close. So this sermon has 2.5 points. I said that our work, we work now and we rest later. But, but I got to just make sure you don't misunderstand something. I don't want to give the impression that our work now earns our rest to come. Because that is not true at all. That is how God created the world. Because he gave Adam and Eve, the first people who he created, work to do. And if they had done that work well, the Bible seems to indicate that they may have gotten some sort of rest. Steve hinted at this in the sermon two weeks ago. And I think we can say that with at least some confidence because of the way that rest is really programmed into the the fabric of history, even before Adam and Eve messed up. But they messed up. They did not enter into rest. They failed at the very first task that God had called them to do. They did not believe God's word, and they hardened their hearts against him. And the result? Work became harder. Work became futile. And they were driven far away from the place of rest. 
And see, after Adam and Eve sinned, they got that really worst of all situation. They were spinning their wheels, their work was futile, and they were going nowhere. The Bible even describes hell somewhat like that. It is a place where people sin and continue sinning. And and it's futile. All the work that happens, the pain that is suffered from the person's experience, at least, it's, it's futile. It serves no purpose. And there is no rest to come. But God had a plan to bring his people back, to give them rest. Jesus entered the world. He is God, but he is also fully man. He did all the work that God had called him to do. At the end of his life, he said, I have finished the work that you have called me to do, O God. And that work included, because of God's great love for us and because of Jesus' great kindness toward us, that work included him dying on the cross for all those who would ever believe in him. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for failing to listen to God and for running away from him and for not doing the work that he called us to do. For doing what we want rather than what God wants. Jesus took the punishment of that for all those who would believe in him. And then Jesus rose from the dead and entered into God's rest. He is the only one who deserves to be there. He is the only one whose works earned him the place of rest. And we enter that place of rest only if we enter through Jesus. You see, that. Jesus is the reason why God can call us into something so intimate towards him as his rest. It's because he is welcome there. Jesus is welcome there. And God welcomes us there with him. He invites us into his rest if and because we are united to Christ. So friends, we enter that rest if and only if we believe in Jesus as our only hope. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you don't know this rest, if you've not trusted in Jesus for salvation, please don't apply this message by, start, by, by begin to accumulate a list of all the good works that you're going to do because now is the time to work. No, don't apply the message that way. Apply the message by running to Christ, who alone can take you into God's rest, who alone has done works worthy of entering into that rest, and you get into that rest through him. But because Jesus has entered that rest, doesn't mean that or he's entered that rest for us. He brings us into that rest. Because of that, it doesn't mean that we then sit back and do nothing. No, now we imitate our Savior in doing work too. The Christian life is this beautiful dance of resting entirely in Jesus and not at all in our own works. And also believing that because of Jesus, Our work is not in vain. Because he has entered that rest for us, our work counts. And we should do it heartily unto the Lord. So friends, hearing a message on rest probably doesn't make you less tired. It may make you realize how tired you are. Thank you for staying awake. But I pray that it does give you a new perspective. There remains a rest for the people of God. This rest is real. This rest is God's rest. It's a rest that he has been working to bring to completion from the very foundation of the world to involve his creation in. It's a rest that he invites you to. So rest in the promise of rest to come and serve the Lord now with faithfulness. Let's pray.